You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. You know, you dress for the job you want, Kirk, and I, I think you should take that to heart. Yeah, I got the I got the jacket right here, so I'm like I'm up and down all day, depending on who I'm who I'm talking to. Oh, you! I feel like you're. I mean, this is actually the nicest anybody has dressed to record a podcast <laughs> with us. Isn't it, Bracken? Yeah, it's, it's not really even close. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. And Bracken actually has sleeves on, so he's really done himself up for you today. Dang. You, you've listened to a few of ours, I know, because you've commented yeah. a few times. So you know that we generally go back in time and yada, yada. Right. I'm skipping right ahead. Okay. I'm building a bridge between Mark, Kirk, and I here right now. Kirk, you knew I know that uh, Mark did Best Ranger competition. You knew I know that you did. I know that you know <laughs> that Mark did best ranger competition. Yes, correct. Do you know who his partner was? No. I, who is your partner, Mark? Uh, Tim Nelson for two of the four years. Yep. So I, I knew you guys had like the, the connection up there in uh, Wisconsin, but I didn't, I didn't know if you knew him personally. I think he's because he's a few years younger than the rest of us. Oh, yeah. We, uh, the WEAC fraternity. We, we keep track of what everyone's doing. And Tim, I believe, was already running when I was running. He, okay. he was young, but Tim was a stud. Animal. Yep. Yeah. I'm so old, I don't know who Tim Nelson oh, is. Oh, you don't know? I've, I'm, I was gone before you even started college, Bracken, so nope. Did he run at Stout? He ran at, yep, UW Stout. He's like a 1350 5K um, and national champion. So he's like one of the few D3 guys who would, you know, jump into those races at Madison and, you know, hang with, with yeah. some of the D1 guys. Kirk, he was the first, he was kind of transcendent, I feel, for the WEAC. He took that, the top guys could be D1 to the top guys can beat D1 guys. Mm. He was, he was running, uh, what did he get down to in 10K in college? Was he in the 28s in 10K? He was, yep. He's, yeah. I mean, usually you see guys 30 low, maybe 29 high, and he was running sub 14, sub 29 pretty consistently, it seemed like. Uh, he was like the distance running Nick Simmons of D3, really. I mean, Nick Simmons yeah. went to the Olympics in the eight, but nonetheless, high level could beat division one yeah. top athletes. So when I saw Mark, when I, when you first came onto my, my radar, I did my research on you and I saw, and it said, and he ran with, with Nelson and there's a lot of Nelsons around here that run. And so immediately I thought, I wonder what Nelson that is, because I don't think he'd match up with like a meathead. He'd probably find someone they'd find someone of similar skill set. And then it said Tim Nelson. I thought there's no way that could be the same guy. Yep. But then I looked it up and read an article and it said Tim Nelson from Wisconsin. And I thought, yep, that that's all I need to know about Mark right there. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty interesting way I, we kind of ended up together too, because I had just competed for the first time. And Tim is, he's a quite a, he's probably like five years behind me in the army. And I had just come out of, I just um, moved to Fort Riley in Kansas and Tim was was rather new there too, so he was a lieutenant. I was a captain, and uh, they they have a thing called the uh, I think it was Victory Week. Yeah, Victory Week. So they run like a, a qualifier for the Army Ten Miler. You know, I'm the new guy on on the installation, and generally there's not many runners who beat me um, out there. So I showed up expecting to win, and this kid 
at the beginning, like just takes off like a shot and he's wearing like army PTs. The rest of us are in like civilian clothes. And I'm like, all right, this like goofy kid is like, you know, he's probably some, some like 18 year old kid who, um, like didn't get the memo and he's just going to burn out in the first half mile. And he just like stayed, you know, that distance ahead of me the entire time. So when I finished, I was like, what, there's no chance this guy like has a Ranger tab. Um, but like based on my performance the first year with my other partner, I was looking for someone who could, you know, who could turn him over. So I go up to him, I'm like, Hey, you by chance have a Ranger tab. And he was like pretty new, uh, to the ranger community at that point and he's an armor officer he's like well actually i do um <clears throat> you know I, I ran so well at at uh, a bullock that they sent me to ranger school so he had like very little experience like rucking and um doing obstacle courses and on the range and stuff like that but he was like he had the engine and i knew like we could work with that and he's he like did everything he, in his power to convince me that he was not the guy for me like he's like <laughs> oh you know he's like i can't bench press my my body weight. I can't do obstacles. I'm not good at rucking. Like he just had every excuse. I was like, okay, you're like a sub 14 5k. Now you've got it, man. And we worked, you know, for the next few months, that first year we finished uh, fifth place together. Wow. How, did he come around on the strength front? Did he, did he end up putting it together? He did. He hated every minute of it though. He's like, I'll never step foot in the weight room again. Um, I'm just doing this for the competition. Um, and then I talked him into doing it another year and we came back, we were deployed in Korea and, uh, we came back from Korea to compete and then went right back, um, went right back overseas. Uh, so we competed twice together, but he's, he's an absolute freak and a great, great person too. It's funny. People ask all the time, why don't more stud runners come over and dust us all in OCR? And Tim's the example. He 100%. Could he build strength quick? Yeah, and he did. Did he ever want to? <laughs> no, there's just no desire to do it. It's not that they're not out there. They're out. They're like sharks. They're all out there. You just don't see them. Right. And we uh, we got back from Korea. I had some. I had a knee injury, and uh, I had signed up for a Spartan race in Korea, and it was going to be like my first Spartan race ever. But I couldn't race, so I was trying to give him, like, dude, you got to go go win this event. And he was in best ranger shape. So I know he would have shown up and done well. He had zero interest. He's yeah. like, nope, no, I'll stick to the, no, I'll stick to the, the track and the road. <laughs> I feel like we all have a list of guys we know, don't we? Mm -hmm. That's like, if we all brought our best entourage into Spartan race, we might be displacing ourselves in a race <laughs> in the future. So I'm kind of glad we haven't made some of our buddies transition. Since we're talking about best ranger, I guess, I was going to wait to get to that, but I, I like that connection. You have a connection to the WEAC, who would have thought? Um, uh, what, what was that competition like, man? That is grueling. How would you describe that, I guess, event or experience? Uh, I mean, I think it's the most difficult event I've ever done, um, but I always wanted more. So I, I I competed four years in a row and I, they, I'm actually locked out at this point. Uh, they, they put a rule in where you can only compete up to three times now. So Rob, uh, Robert Killian and I are both locked out at this point, <laughs> uh -huh. but, but the event is, uh, it's 62 plus hours of nonstop. Like there's no program sleep. There's no program rest. And it's just, you finish one event, they, you move, uh, through a holding area into the next event. So really your only time, your only downtime is if you're, you're caught in line, you know, waiting for another team to compete an event um, before you you start. So Tim and I, and really all the other two partners I had as well, we won that first event. So our rest was 
very minimal because we would be the first one to event at two, first one to event three and so on. And so our event would come at like the end of day one when they wait for all the teams to finish um, an event. And it really is like you're at a disadvantage if you're that last place team on the first event because you're the last place team finishing. And right when they finish is when you start the the nighttime foot march where you, you mm. rock through the entire night. Um, and then along the way, there's a lot of like skilled um, events, technique type uh, type events, a lot of marksmanship ranges and uh, obstacle courses, airborne operations, some waterborne operations. And uh, and then the second night is another night full of rucking, but this time you do land navigation. And usually the minimum distance you can cover in that night just to continue to advance is what roughly 15 to 18 miles is if you walk from the start point to the end point without getting any points. So you're out there 12, 13 hours on your second night with no sleep, just hallucinating, feeling sorry for yourself. So that's where your partner really comes in. You kind of lean on each other. There's, um, there's not to interrupt, sorry, but there is, I don't know if there's a single worse feeling than that feeling you're describing right there. I don't know, is, is it a conscious choice to get through delirium and hallucination and so tired that it hurts? That's how I describe that sort of tired. Is there a skill to that? I think it, it is one of those things that you you get, I don't know, you, you get uh, more accustomed to it with the experience and, and driving through it because you're like, oh, I've, I've been here before. I've been worse off. Um, and I'll say each year, I, I think I I was more conditioned for that aspect. Um, so by the fourth year, I was way better off. But I'd say that first year of the second night, I, I felt really sorry for myself. Um, and I was with a guy who, it was his third time. Um, and we leaned on each other, Tim and I, that first year with him, I was, I was pushing him really hard. And he, uh, he even talked me into taking like a 10 minute nap and that's in the middle of, uh, the, the, uh, land out on the second night. That's what, how bad he was feeling. And I didn't argue either. So I like sat there as he fell asleep for 10 minutes and then woke him up and, and we kept moving. But by the fourth night, like the fourth year I'd competed, um, I think my body and my mind knew what I was getting into. And I think I was more prepared when I, when I reached that point. I'm satisfied with that. Again, I, I didn't know you, but I knew of Tim and I'd watched him compete and reading some of the accounts of it. He talked about at one point or not at one point, but at several points, he just kept asking you if we could take like breaks and you were allowing him to rest at times. And I thought, man, this is the best runner in the history of the athletic conference that I competed in in college, the best. Like everyone knew that he was the stud among studs. And I'm reading about him asking someone else for permission to rest and walk, take walk breaks. And that's, it kind of, it framed my image of who you were because, you know, we always say there are levels to things, but the best engine I knew was requesting rest from you. So I thought on that day, I thought, okay, so I usually discount new people when they come into the sport. They're going to, they won't transition well or they'll, they'll have hangups with whatever. And that day I realized, okay, as long as he sticks with it long enough, eventually we're going to be looking at his backside. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that's where my strength lies is in that long, prolonged enduring and suffering. Um, and Tim would do the same thing to me in our track workouts. Mm. I would just be, you know, just like, Hey man, can we get like, you know, another 30 seconds to recover before we, we hit this repeat. And he is like, no, let's go. Come on. Like we're going to, and, uh, like he lived by that watch on the track and he crushed me in track workouts. Um, so he, he made me a lot stronger in that area. Um, but he just, uh, two different strengths. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, he really enjoys that short, intense, like pushing your body to the to the absolute max and giving selling out over 14 minutes. And then my, I'm just a different type of athlete, and I have, I think, more of the uh, slow twitch, maybe a little more like of the long, prolonged mental fortitude. And I pushed him extremely hard in the ruck march, and that that's another thing is the ruck march on a guy who's that thin. Um, it's tough. I, I've probably got 15 pounds on Tim. So under the heavy weight, um, I think I just held up a little bit, a little bit better, but he's every bit as, as tough as I am. I'm going to, I'll pay you how I, I got my respect for you before knowing you actually as well as my first taste of what it took to be like a ranger. Um, my first race in 2016 uh, was the Chicago sprint and Robert Killian was there. And Bracken, you were there actually. You didn't know who I was, and I saw you chat, and I was actually intimidated by you, Bracken. I didn't have the courage to come up and say hello. You were, you were right. You had good, <laughs> good perception. Yeah, good perception. You just had an ego about you that seemed unapproachable. Yeah. But anyways, that day Robert Killian went out and won the Super on Saturday. Did his, He had media obligations and that stuff. It's right when he became a huge deal after winning the first one. Then he did the 12-hour hurricane heat that night. Didn't sleep at all. And they were finishing up burpees in a mud pit. And it was a muddy event. And we delayed the start of the elite race by 10 minutes. So Robert Killian could finish his 100 or 300 or 1,000 burpees and go to the start line. And he walked to the start line with his eyes sunk in, with mud all over him, looking at his feet, being like, let's just fucking do this. And he smoked us all. After winning the day before, no sleep, 12-hour hurricane heat, came no more than 30 seconds off of burpees. And went and won the sprint the next day against myself, Gowiski, Mike Ferguson, some other high-end athletes. And I said, that's something I don't understand quite yet. Yeah, he's uh, incredibly impressive. And I think he probably had an experience because two years at Best Ranger, uh, Robert and I had a similar experience where day two of the first event was a Spartan race at Fort Benning. So we had just come off, you know, We'd been going 28, I guess, 30 hours straight to that point, probably 40 miles, 35 to 40 miles in the body, uh, hadn't slept. And then uh, we're just like, they load us in a bus and they drive us over the start line of a, uh, at Fort Benning for a, a Spartan race. And it's always like super cold for us that morning and we're soaking wet. And then you see all the elite guys show up and we just like suffer through like a sprint course. Um, and then you hear all these like remarks at the end, like these guys are the best rangers. Cause I mean, we feel like, <laughs> we feel like we're moving, but you look back at footage and we're just like creeping along, um, just completely broken, um, men. But yeah, I think Robert had, uh, had two years of experience and that was really where my, uh, my love for Spartan, Spartan racing came from and where I, I kind of decided like, this is, this is a sport I really want to check out, um, from doing them back in, I think that was 2016 and 2017. I just, it, granted it was my first race, but I thought, God, this guy raced the day before, was up all night working out and still beat me in a sprint when I'm fresh. Like, well, there's no hope for me. That's what I thought after that first race. So knowing that you were a similar best ranger, high finisher, I was like, this guy's badass. No, I, I have those same uh, memories of being just in awe with, with Robert at, I think, 26. It was the year he uh, he won, him and his partner. They stayed out. I think it was 12 hours that year for land navigation on the second night. And he drove uh, Eric, his partner, into the ground. And they came in with like less than a minute to go on land nav. Um, whereas Tim and I, you know, we we thought we were being smart. We got as many points as we could, but got back and 
you know, 35, 40 minutes remaining. And I uh, thought we were like, hey, we kind of cut it close. And then I look, um, as we're standing there at the corral, I look back and I mean, they're like counting down like less than a minute to go. And Robert is physically pushing Eric to the finish line. And they had gone out and got like two more points than, you know, any two or three more points than any other team. And they had been like running all night. And I was like, wow, like that man is on a mission because he, he'd come so close so many years and uh, like, he wasn't going to be denied that year. And that was the, ended up being the difference in, in winning and taking home another second place. That's wild. Natural turning point here. Let's find out how you got this way. <laughs> That's not typical. Sounds right? good. It's not typical. <laughs> so take us back to the beginnings of your mind game and your athletics. When did it start and, and walk us through? So I, I started pretty young. I've got come from a pretty athletic family. My, my father is a college basketball player. My mom's always been a runner. And so they really exposed me to a bunch of different sports growing up. I played, I mean, anything from street hockey, triathlon, um, basketball, soccer, football, baseball. I played pretty much every sport growing up and we moved around. So I was, ex I was exposed to some of the winter type sports during my time in New England. We lived in South Florida where I, I got big into triathlon and soccer, which is probably my best sport. And then, um, Went to Texas. I kind of got, you know, dragged. Oh, you're saying soccer is your best sport? Soccer is probably my best sport. Okay. Um, and then got dragged into, you know, the whole football scene in Texas um, into the beginning of high school. And then we moved back to Maine uh, where I played. I went to a small enough school where I got to play five sports. What was the fifth? So I, I did in the, uh, in the fall, I would run cross country and play soccer. Mm -hmm. uh, our school was, was too small, so we didn't have a football team. And so winter I'd play basketball and then I would run track and baseball in the, in the spring. And I think that's the first five sport athlete we've talked to. <laughs> I think so too. And, uh, and so basketball was, has always been my favorite sport. Um, and I, you know, I had some, some low level offers for soccer throughout new England. Um, but I decided to go to division three and play basketball and you know running was never really a huge part of my life at, at that point cross country i was decent at it i i finished in the top i think top 10 in the state my junior and senior year but like i was a basketball player running cross country um getting ready for basketball season i never like considered myself a runner i bet you're the top finishing cross country basketball player at the state meet because you do not see that transit translate very well to people. i i used to let those guys know about it too um because uh, the beginning, beginning of the year i would be i can remember the, the top runner in our conference would be like he'd be crushing me by like three minutes and then by the end of the season i would be you know right there with him or beating him in some events and like and he, he runs year round that's like his one sport and he went off to 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 run in college. And I was like, man, can you imagine if I did this year round like you? And he was just, <laughs> um, but I, I really never considered running um, after college or running in college. And it wasn't until my senior year after basketball was over. And I kind of realized that, you know, what's next. So you played four years of college basketball? I did. Yep. Four years at, at Colby College in Maine. Colby. Colby College. Yep. The, the mules. You had two guard? So I was, I played point guard my entire life until I got to college and um, we had a, a really good uh, young point guard who's only a year ahead of me. And so from day one, I kind of saw like the, the best way for me to get on that court is to like move to the off guard position. And that's ultimately what they ended up doing. 
and then my senior year, they, they kind of, I kind of split time at, at those two positions, but um, yeah, I like to play with the ball in my hands, but in college, they, they kind of turned me into a different type of player. I was more of a, like a Reggie Miller type running mm-hmm. off screens. You didn't get to create anymore. Not as much. And I, I had some injuries, which uh, to my hands, which hampered my ability to my sophomore year to, to really handle. So I, I felt like I became like a more of a, a shooter. And then my junior year, I kind of got back into hit my stride. And then I had two serious injuries to both of my, my, my left ankle and then my right foot during my first game back. So fractured left ankle, miss a lot of that season. And my first game back, I break my right foot. <laughs> so that, that was my junior season. Then my senior year, like sometimes it takes a little more than a year to come back from those injuries. And uh, I stayed healthy all year. I uh, kind of hit my stride late in the season. And then my, um, my season ended in the, in the tournament with a elbow to the face, which broke my nose. And well, it's barely noticeable. Yeah. Yeah. Gave me some stitches under the eye and the kind of the ironic thing about that, that whole situation is my very first practice in college. I broke my nose in my very last game in college. I broke, broke the nose. So I went full circle. That's closure for you. <laughs> it was. <laughs> so you, um, so if I'm understanding right, even through like high school and then college, um, you know, I ran track cross country, played soccer, Bracken, you were all over the place, I suppose, but well, compared to him, I didn't play many sports. I only, I only played four. <laughs> yeah. I played three, but, um, it doesn't sound like you ever really put a huge focus on aerobic development. It was any fitness was a byproduct of the season you were in or the other sports that you were focusing on. Is that right? Exactly. There was no, there was no like, oh, I'm going to run in the winter to get ready for basketball. It was like once cross country ended and the state meet happened, you didn't run a lick until that first day of track practice. Yeah. It wasn't until I really joined the army that I really got into like sustained uh, training for any type of endurance event. I come from a, a football and a basketball family myself. And so I know a lot of people and I'm aware of lots of people who have played college ball and out of them, exactly none turned into distance runners afterwards. <laughs> none. A few got into biking or triathlon, but none just decided, I can't wait to start my running career. Did you have any inkling or was it just you got into the army, you had to start running for that and it clicked? So I did have a, a little bit of an inkling because after my season ended my senior year at, at Colby, one of my teammates who, who's like 6'6", 240, uh, is like, hey man, let's run a marathon. You know, we, we no longer had open gym and the, the practices to, to get to anymore in that spring. So we needed something, we needed something to do. So he's like, let's run a marathon. And I was like, sure, I'll do it. And we had like a, a horrible train up and we're still doing all the college things that come at a detriment to endurance training. <laughs> and I finished my, one of my finals, um, late one night, I went and picked him up. We drove, got to the hotel, um, in at Sugarloaf mountain in Maine, pounded like three pounds of pasta. He chugged like six Gatorades and we went to sleep and woke up the next morning. And like, I wasn't prepared. I was like, I had like nine inch running shorts. I had like, it was freezing out. So I was wearing like the long sleeve shirt that they gave us for the race. And they put us on a bus and like (laughs) drove us out to the start point. And we, they drove us out uh, 26.2 miles. Then you run and you finish back at the hotel that we stayed at. And um, so I ended up finishing under three hours with horrible training and I finished like 13th and 
the wheels completely came off in like the last five miles mm-hmm. as, as expected. Um, I guess, but I, you know, I, I saw, I was like, you know, I'm, I think I'm pretty capable here with this long distance stuff. Um, I would eventually like to get back to this. It's a good thing you nailed your, your carb loading the night before. Oh, uh, we nailed it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, the funny part about that is it was his idea to run the marathon. And then at, at like mile 18, I'm running and, you know, I hear like, Hey, great job, Mark. Keep it up. And I look over and it's my buddy cheering me on from the side of the road after he dropped out of the race. And I had like, you know, I started with long sleeve shirt on and then it like the sun comes out. Um, I like overheat. I end up taking it off like midway running with no shirt on getting sunburned. Like it was just like a disaster of a performance. That's a perfect first race. Yeah. That is also not the first time we've heard that story. It's this at least the second I've heard of two teammates convince each other to go run. And then the one whose idea it was drops out and the other one finishes and is on their way. Isn't that you Bracken? No, it's not. Oh, I mean, no, it's similar, but different, but like literally a marathon that, uh, Older, wow. I mean, a taller, heavier teammate convinces them to go to. This is the second time I've heard that story. I wonder how many times this happens across the nation. <laughs> I want to make the connection real quick because we started off with this Ranger, best Ranger competition story. And obviously you went to college as a traditional student, so to speak, student athlete, and then immediately went into the Army after you graduated college. Am I understanding that correctly? No, I, I couldn't make it that easy. I actually okay. graduated from Colby and I did a semester of um, graduate school at the University of North Carolina in uh, in Chapel Hill. I'm very confused with your Georgetown email address then. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, <laughs> I guess we can get there. So I, I graduated from Colby, um, decided to pursue a, a uh, you know, medical school was the was the the plan at that point. So I wasn't a, a chemistry bio, I wasn't like a pre-med major at Colby. Um, because like I started out that way, grades were not going to get me there. Basketball was, seemed to be my priority. And, uh, so I switched over to a history computer science, but I still wanted to go to medical school. So I, you know, I, I applied, I got into a post-baccalaureate medical program, which I don't even know if it exists, uh, anymore there, but it was where you, you finish up your, your prerequisites and, um, and if you if you maintain a certain GPA, then you'll eventually you'll class up into the the medical school program. So I lasted one semester uh, down there. Like the heart, my heart wasn't in it. I went from living in in like a basketball house with with teammates to a two bedroom apartment by myself in in Chapel Hill. What year were you there? So that was two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Okay. And so I saw UNC win a win a national championship in basketball that year, and then I. Um, decided to, to look at the officer candidate school route um, in the army. So I left the summer of 2009 uh, for, basic, for basic training. Why? So it was a, it was kind of something I always wanted to pursue. Even coming out of high school, I wanted to, to go to West Point. And, you know, that was 2004. I mean, a lot going on at that time in Iraq, especially. And, you know, my parents were like, well, like really trying to steer me away from from that career at that point, like go to college, see if that's what you want to see if you still want to do that after four years in college. I'm going to interrupt you. I guess I assumed your dad, you were a military family because you moved so much when you were younger. That wasn't true. No, so I'm, I'm an IBM brat. Uh, my, oh. dad, my dad worked for IBM. Know what I found out about IBM, by the way, <laughs> I stay in a lot of hotels. Sometimes you can just type in IBM as a referral code and get a discount Man, that's, <laughs> from the IBM that's family. Well, yeah, pro tip for you when traveling. <laughs> Continue. 
so I, I, I tried to go to West Point coming out of high school. And then uh, four years later, I still kind of wanted to do that. And my, my parents were like, well, 2008, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq still there. Let's start. How about grad school? And I was like, ah, okay. And then I got there and, you know, I'm 22 and I just, my heart really wasn't in it. And um, I was like, it's, it's gotta be now or never. I just don't want to have a regret five, 10 years from now. And if this is going to be something I make a career, like I'm better off getting in now, um, you know, so I can retire it at 22 instead of 62 or 42 instead of 62. And so I just went for it and my parents were 100% supportive. And I told them that I was going to, you know, I, I wasn't going to pursue any like, you know, combat arms positions. And then that's exactly what I ended up doing. Um, when I, when I got there and saw what it was all about. Uh, so yeah, that's how I, how I ended up. And, you know, here we are 12 years later. Are you first generation army or military? So my, both my grandfathers and a grandmother, uh, served during world war two. Um, and then I've got, uh, two cousins who one air force and one army special forces. Uh, but yeah, like kind of skipped a generation there for my family. Within what weeks or months of arriving, you realize you're going special forces. So I showed up to, to basic training. You still don't know at that point, you're just like an officer candidate and you know, everyone tells you, especially as you start getting into the, you know, the rucking and the running and the also courses like, Hey man, you belong in the infantry. That was kind of like almost like brainwashing me at a, at a young age there. And then at officer candidate school, you, you go on a order of merit list or an OML. And it's the, I mean, the kind of what they tell you at OCS is like study hard and run fast. And, you know, I was coming right out of grad school and I ran fast. So I ended up grading out really well at OCS. So I had one of the first choices and I kind of remember sitting there in my room the night before we, we chose branches and I really could choose any, any branch that we, we offer. And I just thought like, you know what, if I'm going to be in the army and I'm probably only going to do this for my three and a half year contract, I just want to do something that I can't do in like the civilian sector. So infantry it is. And I, I kind of thought I'd do one deployment and then I would, I would get out and just like move on to, you know, bigger, better things. And then I, I kind of got, uh, uh, I don't know, roped in and I'm still in today. <laughs> How difficult did you find that process going through special forces qualification and training? So the, uh, so the route I went is I went to the Ranger Regiment, um, which you have to be, as an officer, you have to be Ranger qualified, which is going to Ranger school, which is the 62 days, um, three different phases. And then you, you get your Ranger tab on your shoulder. And then you have to perform as a platoon leader in the conventional army. So I was at uh, Fort Campbell in, in uh, Kentucky for my, my initial platoon leader time, deployed to Afghanistan there. And then when I came back, um, I decided that I wanted to go do that same job, but in the Ranger Regiment. So as an officer, to do a job in the Ranger Regiment, you, you have to do it like, for the most part, you have to do it in the conventional army first, at least at the lower level. So me, along with some other guys who had been platoon leaders, um, you submit a packet and they bring you into what's called RASP or Ranger Assessment and Selection Program. And you come in and you compete for two weeks. And uh, it ends with like a, a pretty uncomfortable board um, where they just like crush you and you just sit there sweating and do your best to answer a lot of questions. And then they, you know, they hire you there and and then they ship you off to uh, to one of the, you know, the three 
I get one of the four battalions um, that they offer, or I guess five battalions now today, but four when I was there. And then you go do that same job, but you do it in the special operations community. And it's a completely different mission set, uh, completely different language, completely different um, type of soldier that you work with. And um, the operational tempo is, is considerably higher. And you get to do like some big time operations of like national significance. So pretty incredible experience that I, that I got to uh, take part in. So I went back to Afghanistan three more times uh, with the Ranger Regiment as a, as a platoon leader. And then uh, the way it works is you come back and you go back to the, the conventional army to go do that next level of command, which is uh, company command. Um, so I completed company command and then I applied to the, the uh, program that I'm in today. And, uh, and so, I mean, that, that door is kind of closing for me to choose whether I want to go back to the, you know, the special operations community, uh, which would entail another selection. Uh, so yeah, for us, at least in the Ranger regiment community, you kind of have to like hop back and forth between uh, regular army and, uh, and the Ranger regiment. Just like on the job training in order to prove you're ready for the next one. Exactly. And that, that's the great thing about the Ranger regiment is like in some other special operations communities, you, you get in at a very like young or low rank and you can basically, you know, sit back and ride it out for your entire career in that community. Whereas the Ranger regiment, they like revalidate you and make you sh- like prove that you're still deserving to serve at every single level when you come back. And it goes for the officers and the enlisted side. So that's one thing like I really appreciate is like, you don't slip through the tracks or slip through the cracks in the Ranger regiment. Like you have to, you have to prove yourself every single day. Going back to that initial, initial um, selection, so to speak, when you came over from the army with several other people like yourself, how many came with you and how many spots were available out of that? So just to get there is, is extremely difficult. There's, I would say probably 25% or fewer applicants actually even get to the, the assessment. Um, so you'll, you'll submit a, through like a portal and then you just get, I just got a phone call and they're like, Hey, you ready to assess? And when you get down there, they tell you that every single person has a slot already. If you get down there. Um, so they, they liked what they've seen on paper. You've kind of been validated in the, in the conventional army mm. and they tell you that everyone has a job, but I'll, I'll say it was roughly a 50%, um, cut rate, uh, once we got down there for a myriad of reasons, whether just physically not where you need to be. Um, they didn't think you were like tactically or technically proficient enough, or um, there was some type of character or integrity type uh, violation that, uh, yeah, some guys just had something very, very small pop up over those two weeks. And they just like, yep, that's a, um, that's a no-go right there. And they weren't, they were not hired. So roughly for, for my position, I think there was, they only brought in, I want to say nine of us. And I think four or five were hired. Small odds though, when it comes down to it, huh? Through the whole application process, who even feels qualified to apply to start with? So that weans out a lot. Then only a quarter of those people. So that's a, the, the best of the best, could we say? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the, the people I worked alongside, um, sometimes you question whether, um, like I question whether I belong there, especially when I got to the, to the unit. I showed up right as they had deployed to Afghanistan and I was like thrown right into the fire. And I can, I can remember nights early on, you know, there's so many things, thoughts going through my head and I'm trying to pick up this new terminology and, uh, 
you you start questioning like man am i am i like the right guy for this job this is a lot and like anything it's one of those things if you just keep driving forward like you you pick it up and um it, like i kind of laughed 2 years later when i on my last deployment there when, before i left i was just like things that were stressing me 2 years before you know i was just like um i just kind of laughed at how far i'd come as a as a platoon leader what what is it they say if if you're the smartest or the best person in the room, you're in the wrong room, right? <laughs> yeah. So you were obviously in the right room. I was, yeah. I think I'm always in the right room. <laughs> this is why I love interviewing endurance athletes, but specifically OCR athletes, because everyone's in this sport because they decided to stick around past some butt whoopings. Oh, yeah. We talked about all the talented people who have come over, and I love interviewing runners, pure runners, because they're they're incredible people and their minds are, you know, super strong in one specific area. But I love interviewing people who are OCR athletes because everyone gets to the point where they're just really exposed and you have to choose to come back. You have to choose to stick around. And that's usually why we don't take people seriously when they come in because you realize I've seen you before and he left and he didn't come back or she didn't come back. So I like part of the reason I love going back through people's stories is you start to see that picture painted of why they came back again. And you realize now talking to you, at the beginning, I wondered with you, like, this guy's really fast. He's clearly strong. He's getting training with Megita now, and he's done his special forces stuff. Like he has all the the ingredients here that if he sticks around long enough, he's going to be an issue. Will he come back? And it's funny <laughs> now to hear that this is probably like, what, the hundredth, two hundredth, three hundredth most difficult obstacle you faced. <laughs> like, of course, you're going to keep coming back. And, and I like seeing these what makes people resistant to to walking away? Yeah, and I think my like I'm definitely going to keep coming back, but I think my window is closing, which I think I a hope lot, so. A lot of people <laughs> don't think about, but I, you know, my first really my first nine years in the army, I didn't have the opportunity to to train or compete mm -hmm. um, like this um, because I was constantly, you know, training in the field, deployed. Um, and then just like the, the everyday life, they keep us in a good shape in, in the military because we, you know, it's the first thing we do every day is work out, but we're not getting much sleep. We're, you know, a lot of times the really tough to, to keep up on your nutrition. And uh, it wasn't until I got here um, for this program, and that's how I got the Georgetown um, email, uh, that I had the time to actually dedicate and train the right way um, where I could actually pursue uh, some of these goals. So I, re I really only have until, uh, cause my time here is coming to an end probably in September. Oh really? And so I'm going to have to go back to, you know, the real world of the army again. I don't know what that looks like. So I, I could squeeze another year out, uh, potentially, uh, beyond that. But, um, depending on what's going on in the world or what, what my unit is doing at that time, like, uh, I might be that guy like hopping in and getting my butt kicked again and, and just the local, like Spartan elite races. Hmm. Uh, we'll see. It wouldn't be possible to get high level race fitness. If you're in a position again, like that, you don't believe that it's going to be, you can't fit it in, I suppose, with the structure of your days and weeks or. I think, I think I can, uh, just with the, with the right assignment. Um, and then, but, but there's times like, uh, like Tim, like Tim and I, uh, when we were in Korea training for best ranger, the difference between fifth place and 13th place the next year with experience was that um, I was a I was a company commander and Tim was a uh, 
was an XO at the time. All of our training was conducted at like nine o'clock or later at night in the freezing cold in Korea after, after being up for, uh, since like four in the morning out on like gunnery ranges, we'd come back exhausted, go for a run like late at night, hit the, hit the gym and get up super early and drive on like sketchy Korean roads to get to a fitness center the next morning. And we were exhausted. Um, and then with how this sport is growing and the level that everyone is on, like it's, it's tough. You get, you can't really get by, um, training at that in, uh, to can really compete at the highest level. I think, um, I don't know. You guys, you guys probably agree, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine if you're, you're putting in 12, 16 hour days and your choices, I get six hours of sleep if I go to bed now, or I take another two hours to train and get four hours of sleep. It's not sustainable. It's just right. not sustainable. Um, before we, I want to go back actually and ask about your training and entering the army and your fitness progression and all that. But just since you brought it up um, and I'm curious, what are you doing today? Like you have the Georgetown email address, obviously you're affiliated with the university, I'm assuming. What are you doing right now? Uh, so the, the program I, I applied to is is called the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff Internship that the Army offers. It's, so coming out of company command, which I did in at a Fort Riley in Kansas, I instead of going back to the Ranger Regiment for round two, I decided to um, apply to this internship, which is it's a three-year program with year one at Georgetown in the advanced program to... Uh, where we earned our master's degree in, uh, in policy management. So completely outside of my wheelhouse, um, went to Georgetown, picked up my MPM. And then the second year we work in the, in the office of the secretary of defense or on the joint staff at the Pentagon. So last year I worked in the, in the Pentagon doing some special operations type type stuff. And then the third year of the program, which I'm currently in is on the army staff. Um, and I happened to land, in my opinion, probably the coolest gig on the Army staff, which is I work in the office of the Chief Legislative um, Legislative Liaison. So I am a I'm a liaison between the Army and the Senate right now. Uh, so I work on Capitol Hill, and I work. You know, I'm I'm kind of the the middleman between Army senior leaders and uh, ten different Senate offices. So wow. pre- pretty cool exposure. I'm I'm suit and tie every day. Um, and just a completely different experience that I'd, I'd ever get in the army. And this, this program will end uh, here in a few months. And then I'll go on to like a intermediate level education for a few months out here in DC. And then uh, I'll be off to wherever the army sends me, which is looking like uh, Fort Carson, Colorado, most likely. Bracken, when, just when you think like, ah, oh, we're changing the world one listener at a time with our podcast, we're really doing the people's work, Bracken, and then you have Mark Goddard over there, just... Senate liaison. <laughs> it just, yeah, it's very humbling to hear. That's amazing. What's the intended outcome of this then? Are you going to become a, a mover and shaker on Capitol Hill after this? Is this leading you into a life of politics and policies, or is that what the next decision point is for you? Yeah, so I never envisioned that, and I still don't see my myself heading that route, um, at least now. But I definitely have a little bit of the exposure and the experience. Um, I mean, maybe post military, I would look in that into that realm. But uh, yeah, Magita and I uh, joke about it because you know he he always says that he's going to run for office someday, and I told him I'd be his his chief of staff or something. But I don't know if I have the uh, I don't know if I have the the charisma or the um, maybe even the stamina to 
to be a member of of Congress at the state or like federal level. So why did you take this? Why did you apply for this? Was this something that will round out your command potential? Exactly. I mean, they they identify people at the younger, at the captain level at that time who have potential for, you know, to one day maybe be an army senior leader. And so they try to get us exposure in the DC area um, mm-hmm. at the, when we're majors. So when, when, or if we do come back to the Pentagon, one, we have the, you know, the, the institutional knowledge that we picked up at Georgetown and the credibility that we can, you know, go on Capitol Hill, talk with members, talk with staffers. Um, and they, Oh, Hey, this like general officer is not just a, a, a knuckle dragger. He's, he's got the same education as, as some of us. And, um, he's got experience, um, in the, the national capital region. So that's kind of the idea behind it. And personally, why I pursued it, um, I'd say half was for a family decision with, you know, five deployments, um, throughout the, the early part of my career with, you know, I deployed, I missed the birth of my, my oldest son when I was deployed. Um, I deployed for nine months, uh, a week after my, my next boy was born. Um, so my wife, my wife really wanted me to pursue a, a broadening opportunity that kept me close, uh, to home. And this has been incredible family time uh, for us. And then I think the second part was this was going to be good for my career and also close a, a pretty sizable knowledge gap for me. It's like I'm not a I didn't understand anything about politics or how the government worked. Uh, so, you know, going into Georgetown in that master's program, I, I was like super out of place, especially early on with most were young professionals coming off the hill or they were, you know, foreign diplomats, you know, trying to pick up an American advanced degree. And like a lot of these people had years and years in politics and policy experience. And I'm just a dude who's, you know, walked around the desert of Afghanistan for a while. Um, you know, trying to hang with them really made me raise my level. I keep wanting to go back to your fitness and then you keep just peaking my curiosity, Mark. Just, <laughs> this is not how we do things. Normally we keep track from the beginning and move forward. But now that now it's coming up again is like, what is, so you're right in the thick of things right now. I know we don't talk, we don't get into politics too much on this, but what is it feeling like right now? Like where you live and like the climate, political climate is, are things tense or um, are things under control, Mark? I mean, I think today things are under control. Uh, I say tensions are easing a bit. We'll see. You know, next week is the impeachment articles are, I guess, two, yeah, the ninth is when the impeachment articles are going to be presented. Impeachment article uh, we presented and we'll see if that, you know, drives any more civil unrest uh, throughout the district. Um, but I think one thing that I, I did find out here is, you know, political appointees are always going to have, you know, they're going to always going to have their agenda because um, they were put in place um, by someone who wants them to, you know, drive their office department, whatever, in a certain direction. However, you know, 95% of the people working on Capitol Hill are just like regular people, like trying to do the best, you know, for, um, for their families and for their country. Um, and to me, that, that, it, that was like really comforting uh, to see, whether that's in the Pentagon, whether that's on Capitol Hill, just phenomenal staff um, everywhere you go on the civilian and military side of people, you know, just trying to do the right thing. Um, and, you know, we only hear about the, the higher level politics uh, that go around, but there's, there's phenomenal people who are, are still holding down the fort um, here at home. So that's really comforting uh, to know for me. Yeah, that is comforting. 
Um, let's, uh, let's go back to army and your fitness progression and let's get into why you're a stud and people should be looking out for you, uh, in about four weeks in Jacksonville, which I'm assuming you're going, um, you'll be there. Um, talk about your training once you got into the army and leading up to finally getting out of all that, what were you doing to progress yourself physically then? So coming into the army, I, you know, I, I realized, um, right at the beginning, I was, a str- I was a stronger runner than, than most, which was giving me opportunity. Um, because the first people they're going to send to air assault school, airborne school, ranger school, whatever, all those schools, which I wanted to go to, um, as a Lieutenant, they're just like, just send the fittest guy, you know, if we only have one or two slots. So I saw it as a way of like advancing my career at a young, young age. And then it was just a huge stress relief for me, um, as well. When I started getting freedom, I was a, a young single guy, like, what am I going to do with this, all this extra time? And, you know, so I always would find races, um, and just spend a lot of time in the gym, but I was more about just all around type fitness, still really not endurance type. The longest I would go would be maybe a half marathon or the 12 mile foot March, um, in the army. And so I really only trained for army specific events. Um, and the army would, would roll me out for you know, different unit type competitions, installation wide, like PT events. And so that was mostly what I was training for early on in my life uh, or in my army life. And uh, as I got into the Ranger Regiment, you get surrounded by some absolute animals, a lot of, you know, former D1 football players, former track athletes, former, I mean, they, everyone came from some type of athletic background and they're just freaks in the gym. And we had a incredible strength and conditioning staff former Mariners, former Seattle uh, Seahawks trainers, and they trained with us on a daily basis. And uh, I, they sent me to run the Boston Marathon, which I didn't train for, but I, I trained up for the, uh, the Baton Death March, which is one of the harder uh, marathons I've done because I had a, a rucksack on my back. But I, uh, they trained me up for that, and that was kind of where I, I was like, I should really start doing this stuff um, more often. I, I really saw, like, I, you know, I was – as the distances got longer, I just got stronger and I kind of fed off other people's misery, if that, mm. if that makes sense. And so really still training for mostly army type events. And then I, I got accept, obsessed with best ranger competition. Um, and I just kind of stuck with local races here and there. And it really wasn't until I got to Georgetown where I was like, you know, I'm 30, you know, in my early to mid thirties at that point. And you know, my window is closing. I've got a three-year gap to see what I'm really capable of. Um, and like, let's do it. So I feel like, like when Tim Nelson and I were training together, he, he felt like the window had already closed on him and he had already like seen what he was capable of. And I was like on the opposite end of the spectrum. Like I, you know, I haven't really tapped into, to what I'm capable of. And I want to know, I really want to know, um, and I'm not going to have any regrets. So that's kind of what led me into the last three years of just not passing on any opportunity, really not specializing in anything and just, just going for it. It doesn't matter if it's a, a 5k OCR type race, ultra marathon. Like I'm going to, I'm going to see what I'm capable of. Well, it's worked. If you look <laughs> at your times, which we have, uh, there's a significant shift, uh, trying to in the positive direction in the last three years. And, and I do want to talk about some of your race results because they, I think will buoy your credibility. But before that, I, I want to know just what, what does that look like for you? 
you've gone all in for three years now. What does all in look like for Mark Odette? So all in for me is two workouts on most days. Um, really try to take a look at my my sleep habits and my nutrition habits, which I, I'm still, I think for me, like I'm not a, um, I still haven't dialed that in yet. Um, so I think three, it's been a three years of a lot of trial and error, um, with training, nutrition, sleep. I think I've gotten that part down for the most part. Um, but all it is has been for the last three years is fine tuning all of that, but it's, I mean, it's hard work, two day workouts, you know, going hard two or three times a week, um, but staying consistent on those other days and still getting in, you know, the miles, the repetitions and, uh, and then it's just setting goals that are that are like kind of crazy and almost out of reach. But, um, you know, if, if you miss, if you set a goal that's way out there and you fall a little bit short, a lot of times that's still pretty, uh, pretty impressive. So that's what, what it looks like for me right now. You satisfied Kirk? Not at all. Nope. 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 <laughs> I don't, but you set us up really nice, Mark. Which yeah. Is good. Okay. Let's start with two a days. What does two a days look like for you? So I run six days a week. Um, and usually the seventh day is a, a bike of some sort. And if you look at my, if you look at my Strava, you probably don't catch, you don't catch everything. Um, it's also hard to gauge what I'm actually doing. Cause I, I do, I take workouts from you guys. I do a lot of compromise type running. Um, so a lot of times you'll just see a Monday morning, 45 minute run, seven twenty-five pace. And well, I, no idea what's in it. Yeah. And that's not, that's not a, what that looks like. Um, but I steal a lot of workouts that you guys have, whether, you know, it's the ascending ladder of lunges on, on every mile or, um, carry type workouts, burpees on, on every mile. Uh, I did the, the ascending ladder of one minute on one minute off two minutes on two minutes off. So I do a lot of variation and, I, I think uh, I think Hunter talked about it on on your podcast is uh, you know getting comfortable in every gear and I think I'm comfortable in the lower gears for longer distances that's just a natural ability of mine and I know I need to put work at especially for Jacksonville in those higher gears where my heart rate is you know 180 uh, plus you know I need to build fitness and toughness like mental toughness at those so that's kind of what I'm focusing on right now. And you said you do two to three of those hard workouts per week? I do. So right now, um, I have three kind of like workouts that I'll hit every single week in the in the training block for Jacksonville. So one of them is a, I call it just like a longish run. And that's going to be like 80 minutes plus one day a week, which really isn't that, it's not really that long, um, especially as I'm getting ready for some of the ultra running. But I just want to, I want to get that sustained, you know, maintain that base that I built from like the JFK, uh, 50 training, uh, that I did back in, you know, race that in November. Mm-hmm. I just want to kind of maintain that, that strength there. And then a second time, my second, a workout for the week is a, a race simulation of some sort. So something that's going to simulate what I'm going to encounter at Jacksonville. And lately it's been I'm a, a high rocks type sim where it's, mm-hmm. um, four minutes on the treadmill at uh, race pace off into, um, you know, some type of workout station. David's been putting me through these. Uh, we've been doing them together as he gets ready for high rocks too. And, and then back on, and we should do eight to nine rounds 
So we're going a little over the 30 minute duration that we expected Jacksonville, but I just want that, that extended high heart rate for, for 30 minutes. And, you know, it's something that simulates what we're going to encounter in Jacksonville. And then uh, my third workout is on Sundays, which I do, I'm doing a progression week to week of a 5k time trial. Um, and I'm doing it on a treadmill, which is not ideal, but I, I really want to hit specific um, splits. So we started back, I think, six weeks ago, and David's doing it uh, with me. And we start at, I think we start at 10.7 miles per hour on the treadmill. And then at every half mile, we're going up 10.8, 10.9, every half mile until we get into the final mile and we go up every quarter mile. So you essentially end 0.8 miles per hour faster than you started. And the next week, you'll start one mile or 0.1 mile per hour faster than you did the week before. So you're ending 0.1 mile per hour faster. So we started out at roughly 17 minutes on the treadmill, which seemed, it actually didn't seem that easy because we had just finished JFK uh, 50 and like my legs did not want to turn over at all. But here we are seven, seven weeks later and we're right at 16 minutes. And so my goal is that, um, you know, probably two weeks out from Jacksonville is I want to hit sub 1530. And I think that's kind of, I'll, that'll tell me like, you know, I'm right where I need to be. Um, because I, I felt like I had the speed last year. I just didn't do anything else right. Um, last year. Um, so I'm shoring up those things on the side as well, which is more of the technical obstacle proficiency stuff. Uh, but I know my speed, I think somewhere in that 1520 range is going to be, is going to be good to keep me in the you know, keep me competitive. I think so. Uh, in terms of your your high rocks type workout, where you're running four minutes on, then doing strength. What's your strength? Sec- how, how long are you going on the strength exercises? Roughly? So we're doing two and a half minutes okay. each. Whether that's like sometimes assault bike, sled push. Um, we'll do um, ski erg mm-hmm. type rowing, um, carries, uh, burpee, broad jump, um, thrusters, wall balls. Yeah. All the good stuff. Yeah, all the good stuff. Especially, yeah, the 100 wall balls at the end just demolishes me. Like, oh, it's, yeah. it's terrible. So then you said on the treadmill, you're hopping on and targeting race pace. What are you classifying as race pace for Jacksonville right now? Damn it. Reckon that was the exact question I was going to ask. Oh, yeah? <laughs> good job. Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> so I I generally am I'm clipping between uh, 515, 525, okay. somewhere in that range. Because I think. Uh, for me, I, I don't, I haven't hit that point like Kirk and, and you where like guys can really sell out in OCR. And I, that's something I'm still working towards. Um, I'm, I always hold a little bit, you know, in reserve because I've seen what happens <laughs> when I don't. And that was like my first couple races in the, in the sport. Um, when, like you said, you know, you get your butt kicked and a lot of yeah. guys don't come back, but you know, I, it was actually David. My first race was in DC. I failed the spear, which was the like the second obstacle, and I caught all the way back up. Like David hit the spear, um, and then I ran him in, um, ran him down at the end of a sprint. Got to like the last obstacle, and then failed the. Um, I think it was the rig, but I was comp- I sold out every single thing I had, and I just it should not have been hard for me to do, but I couldn't even like hang on to the. Yeah. Um, the rings and that has always stuck with me to like hang on to like just enough. Uh, so I'm kind of waiting for that day when I have the confidence to really sell out like like some of the top really top tier guys. I like that. 
we talked about this in our Q&A uh, episode that we did last Friday. Um, and it came down to like, is the treadmill effective, like an effective training tool to choose to use for even some of this compromise work? Like, shouldn't you be on real terrain? And my argument was that, well, here's the deal, mentioning 515 to 525 pace and you being a natural, like you want to conserve typically. Well, when you get done with your thrusters, you do not want to be running 515 pace, but it forces you to do so, correct? No. So what I like the treadmill about the most about is uh, I saw that cameo there. Is that your wife behind you? Yeah, yeah, she did not <laughs> want to be seen on camera. <laughs> we don't show the video, she'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, uh, no video here. Yeah, but um, anyways, my argument was like, no, like when I do work on the treadmill, it forces me to go right back into an uncomfortable race pace. Whereas if I'm doing outside, I might take 50 to 100 meters to get back up to speed. Do you feel that same way about it? I'm sensing yes. 100%. Yeah, and I mean, when we when we talk treadmill work, the way I feel about it, I just purchased one. Um, and I got the same treadmill that you guys got. Uh, so that's how highly I think of, of treadmill work. And not only, like you said, you have 100% control of like the pace that you're getting on at. Um, like there's no, there's no option to either stay at that pace or you fall off the treadmill. Um, and I, I like that. Uh, and it's like, I think it also builds some mental toughness too, because I really enjoy running outside and just kind of taking in the, you know, the scenery and everything. But uh, when it's time to get to work, um, that treadmill will keep you honest at, uh, at certain paces. And I definitely noticed when you, when you log the mileage, the, the pounding on the legs and just, um, I think it does say, it allows me to probably add an additional five to 10 miles per week without really um, pounding my legs so much. So those are, I really do think treadmill training is, is huge. And especially for, for speed type work, um, you know, once, once a week is, is only going to help. Um, and I, I do try to get outside though, and, and get some speed work on trails, especially for me with my, my weak ankles. Um, because that's going to be the difference is, uh, is who can turn them over on, you know, the uneven ground and the sloppiness, uh, when we get down to Jacksonville. So you mentioned volume. What does volume look like for you right now, prepping for a, a 30 minute race? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a pretty low volume guy, really. I'm probably 50 to 60 miles right now, getting ready for Jacksonville. And how does that compare to uh, prepping for a JFK 50? Yeah, and I'm not like even for JFK, I'm 60 to 75, 80 miles tops. Oh, now you were very successful at JFK. You've had back to back years in the top 10. And mm -hmm. anyone who knows the ultra community knows that JFK is used as uh, for two things for, for ultra runners. The first is it's used for people looking to break through. It's a relatively runnable 50 miler. And there's technical portions in the first half. And then the second half is much smoother to the point where people often change shoes halfway. They go from their trail shoe to their road shoe, but it's a accessible 50. And so almost not everyone, but most people in the U.S. especially who want to make a name for themselves in the ultra world, that's their transition race. It's their coming out party. And then it's also used for the established racers to come in and test their fitness because it has very good course records and you can you can tell your splits based on previous years. So it's, it is it is a meeting ground for two very good portions of the population. And you've gone top 10 two years in a row. Yep. So that that right there puts you in a, a different level of running. And you probably are one of the lower mileage athletes to go top 10. So what is, what does your training look like that you're able to get away with low mileage and complete a 50 mile, not just complete, but race a 50 mile race? I mean, I think it's, I think some of it is just my natural 
ability to grind. Um, and then I think a lot of the OCR work that we do uh, really transfers over to that distance. Uh, at JFK, especially in 2019, I ran it not too long after we got back from Tahoe. And so mm. my entire training, like I didn't care about, about JFK at all. I was just all in on, you know, making, um, closing the gap on the the top tier guys from, you know, from West Virginia to Tahoe. I wanted to have a, a better performance. So I was all in on, on climbing and, uh, and I just showed up at JFK with like, I, I really didn't know what to expect. Really. It was my first 50, um, straight 50. And I knew a lot of the top tier guys were showing up. So I, I just went after it on the, on the AT and those guys are super cautious out there. So I was like ahead of Zach Bitter on the AT. And then when we get to the Sino towpath, I settled into like a nice comfortable pace and I saw like the top tier guys, they just like flew by me, like just, and I was like, Whoa, okay, this is what, this is how this race is supposed to be supposed to be run. So I took some pointers from the year before and, uh, still didn't really go all in on, on JFK this year. Um, I, you know, I'd run the army 10 miler about a month. Well, I guess, yeah, a month before or six weeks before. And then I ran a marathon and, um, both very quick. Yeah. Pretty good. Uh, pretty good times. And I, but I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was like all in on any of those races. Um, I just kind of wanted to have a good showing in all three. So I was doing a, a, a combination of speed work, um, one generally long run a week and, uh, and then just trying to bank on my experience when I got there. Cause I knew the course and, uh, and David was going to show up and I was actually going to have a, a crew of, of sorts, uh, because the, the year before I just ran with all of my nutrition on a vest and everyone else, everyone else had like, you know, the, the hand bottles and every, like they were getting changed, like changes of shoes and, you know, food in routes in between the uh, aid stations and everything. I was like using aid stations by the end. And, uh, and then, but one thing I didn't learn is because I was a, you know, I'd finished the top 10 the year before, but I, they still didn't think I was any type of threat uh, coming in 2020 either because they still gave me like a, you know, a big number and uh, the top tier guys all get passes. So their, uh, so their crews can get on the course. Mm. Our crew couldn't, couldn't see us until mile 27. So those guys, like I'm like running with, I'm like, where are they getting? Like they're switching out their bottles. Like these guys are just appearing in the woods and I'm like, <laughs> how is this happening? And then one of them reaches over like, Oh, you didn't get a pass. And I'm like, Nope. I'm like, oh, you should ask for it next year. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, uh, I don't know. I think OCR training really translates to that um, that distance. You just got to pop a couple long runs per week and, you know, and grind it out. So what is long for you? Long for me? Yeah. I mean, I would say I still consider like, you know, 90 plus minutes a long, long run. What did you top out at prior to JFK? Uh, so the longest run I did before JFK was that, was that marathon. So two thirty six was the longest run I did. <laughs> so prior to a 50, you weren't running much more than 50 miles per week and you never ran really over half the distance in training. No, no. And that's, that's, uh, that's one thing that like I talked to my, with my father about quite a bit. He's, he's still like an accomplished, uh, age group runner. Um, but he tries to keep me really focused on, you know, your goals are really in the OCR. Like that's, if that's really what you want to go for. Um, but he's like, like, there's no doubt the ultra scene is if you really want to go all in. Um, but if, is that really what you want? Um, right. But, 
but it really isn't. I like popping in those races and see what I can do. But when you see like a, like a, uh, like a Raj in the, in the carbon mm-hmm. X2, like when you see that I've placed just behind him at JFK and then you see him break the American record in the, in the hundred K, you know, just a few weeks later. And you're like, wow, I was just running with that guy, um, on 50 miles per week. You kind of wonder like, well, what, what am I capable of if I really did put in the the time? But I, I don't know. I think, I think I just enjoy the, uh, OCR stuff a little bit more. Mm. Well, there's always that question. Are you doing it because of it or despite it? <laughs> and there are examples of people who go from 70 to 90 mile weeks and they just get so much better. And then there are people who blow up. Camille Heron, who we saw at the Carbon X2, uh, did blow up. Um, but she's the world record holder in basically every women's event uh, longer than 12 hours. She has the 24-hour record where she ran I don't know, something foolish, like 809 pace for 24 hours. She doesn't run longer than 22 miles in training ever. So 22 miles is her long run and she will run hundred mile races and she holds a 24 hour world record. So it's, it's really hard to say that you're doing anything wrong because there's every person you find, there's a counter example that is successful off the opposite. And it seems like you've been relatively healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's, for me, my my weight can fluctuate considerably. Okay. Um, and when I'm in it, like my kind of my a form is like 160. Um, for me, really to, I'm just about six feet tall. So okay. I'd say like just under six feet. Um, but like, you know, I can like at 160 to 165 is really where I want to be for like OCR. Cause I, I really know, notice like the diminishing strength if I start dipping mm-hmm. down into the one fifties, but that's really where I need to be for those ultra type events. Um, and I, I noticed, I can really notice the difference. Um, so this year was kind of a, you know, I, I, I got down there. I was like around 155 for JFK, but like, I look back at the pictures and I look, look like a spoon chest and I'd, I'd probably fail, you know, half the obstacles in a, in a Spartan race at that time. So it's a battle, isn't it? It is. It's a battle. I struggle with that. We talked about this recently on a couple episodes too, between like the physique you want and need for OCR and the speed you actually need to run as fast as you want versus your weight. It's a tricky one. It really is. So you were, so you basically took your Tahoe, you built for Tahoe uh, or OCR and then carried that fitness through to the other races in a sense, huh? That's just what I'm understanding. Was still OCR in the back of your head knowing you'd keep coming back to it. Right. Yeah. So Tahoe into Army 10 Miler in 2019 mm-hmm. into JFK 50. Um, and okay. then it was Army 10 Miler, the Richmond Marathon into JFK 50 um, this year. Worked out all right. Were you staring at my back most of that race in Tahoe last year? Because I didn't realize you were there. And then every single dang picture I have of myself in Tahoe in 2019, you're behind, you're in the background. Yeah. So, <laughs> like every photo. so Tahoe, you, you may not remember, but you, I think you passed me coming out of the water or we were around each other coming out of the water. And I remember I was messing around with my jacket and you like got yours out and got it on like super fast. And I was like, I had like wet arms trying to get into a, a windbreaker that it just was not working out. And then we, we got onto the, uh, like the switchbacks down and you just were out of sight within like three minutes, just with your ability to run downhill. And then I didn't see you again until we got down to the, uh, the, uh, like the rig down there, the monkey twister, Twister yeah. monkey twister, and then uh, I f- like lost feeling in my hands um, in, the, in the swim. My hands didn't even work, so I made it about two feet 
on the first section of the twister and came off and I saw you go through. And uh, so I knocked out the 30 burpees there. And then I, that next climb, I just like, I gave it every single thing that I had. Mm. And by the time we got to the very top, I had, I could see you on the wall as I was coming to the base of the wall with, uh, I think Logan was there with you too. Mm. My bike group break green jacket. Yep. Your green yeah, jacket. Okay. And then by the time I got over the wall, and you guys are running downhill again. You just like we're out of sight again. Okay, that makes sense why you're behind in a bunch of pictures that that, that yeah. put together. Um, I wanted to ask. Moving on from that, um, I wanted to ask uh, about your progression. We talked about this three years, and like I wanted, I got three years to go all in before who knows what happens with your position. Um, so what? How much have you improved, Mark? Like, tell you were saying, oh, I was running some road races and stuff. Uh, just for kicks. And then you started your build. Like what were you running for times before you took it seriously? And where are you at now? And I'm personally just curious from a competition standpoint, because I'll be racing you in four and a half weeks. Yeah. So 5k distance, like army fitness, just, you know, doing PT from six to seven or six to six thirty to eight every morning. I was in a local 5k's running around, you know, 17, maybe just breaking 17. Um, and that's just like regular army fitness. And now I'm, I'm probably low 15s, um, at that, at that distance. And then you're faster than that. If you cracked one off, you could break 15. I think if I put in, I think if I put in a good, uh, yeah, a good block, cause I'm, I'm feeling better this year than last year doing Cause I did a, a similar progression last year on the 5k. Uh, but I did it on a, a, uh, like a regular treadmill this year. I'm doing it on a, a, uh, woodway, which is definitely closer to a, like a road, uh, feeling. And, uh, I'm, I think I'm a little bit ahead of where I was last year. Two minutes, basically better, which is, I don't know if people realize how much, how hard it is at that speed to get two minutes better mm -hmm. at the 5k. That's like a 30 minute 5k or becoming a 24 minute 5k. <laughs> yeah. The gap isn't, it's not, you know, they don't correlate. So that's impressive. And then at the marathon distance, so going out a little farther, I, the last marathon I did in Kansas before we moved out here, I ran 248 and change. So just, I think it was right around 249. And then I ran, uh, 230, 236, um, over the marathon distance on a, probably a harder course. And it wasn't a race, right? Yeah. It was a virtual type deal. So, uh, Dave McGee and I ran, ran together. So it was his, it was his big race for the year. And I, I kept him on, he wanted to, he wanted to break 240. That was the, the goal for the day. And I kept him on for 20 miles. And at 20, I kind of pushed the pace from like 18 to 20, which is probably not a good idea. I told him like, Hey man, we're down to like that final eight, like, let's go, let's go for it. And he's like, all right. And by the time we hit mile 20, he was like, dude, that was a bad idea. Just leave me. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go try to PR at this point. So I, I went from there and tried to, to maintain what we were doing and, and he suffered through, he still put up a, a great time. Um, but I think if I wouldn't have pushed him at, uh, at mile 18, I think he would have broken 240. So I kind of, kind of screwed him there a little bit. So you improved by what, 13 minutes and you didn't race it. You paced him for 20 miles and then brought it home. Yep. Yeah. And then, I mean, I'm impressed by your JFK. I think that's your most impressive race, but your most impressive jump in fitness. I, I, I was blown away by your 10 mile, your army 10 miler. So talk us through those. So my, to give an idea of where I guess my 10 mile has gone is I've run that, I think seven years, six years in a row now. 
the Army 10 miler in DC. Uh, and the course has changed a little bit, but I've I've run anywhere depending on my fitness. Um, I've run anywhere from just under 57, so 56 and 56.50, I think one time was my slowest, uh, down to uh, 53, just over 53. And then this year we ran a virtual race, and we had a really favorable course that uh, Rich Ryan came down from Philly, and and David ran, and um, it was a, I think it was a net downhill. It was like perfectly flat, like straight arrow um, on the Capitol Crescent Trail in DC. And we ran, I ran 52.04 and Rich broke 52. So I, I think I still would have broken 53. So I would have PR'd mm-hmm. again, but I think 52.04 is a, a little bit of a stretch, honestly. Still, these are, these are very fast times now for someone who's not a, what you would consider a traditional, traditionally trained runner. And that's mm-hmm. from three years of consistency. Right. Yeah. And it's taken three years to, to get here. There's nothing fast about uh, really getting to the the highest level of this sport, I'll say. I think that your story should be encouraging for people because it shows two things. One is that consistency is king. You just go out there and do it. Nothing crazy. You're not following crazy periodized training. You're not following crazy workouts. You're kind of running similar volume all year round and just changing your workouts dependent on the race, just changing your quality days, but you're consistent and and it it shows that it just works. So that that should be that should be fun for people to hear that I can get better if I'm just consistent. I don't have to find a magic formula. The second is that you're doing all these things without doing anything superhuman in training volume-wise. Like you're not living the professional runner lifestyle. You've got your job which is not a job that's free of stress or hours. Right. You have a family, you're running relatively low mileage for a distance runner, you're not running long runs and you're competitive through 50 miles and probably would be farther than 50 miles as well. So this should be encouraging for people to hear that you don't have to do 30 mile long runs. You don't have to do hundred miles a week. You don't have to do anything crazy. You just have to show up each day. Absolutely. Yeah. The consistency is, is key. And then I think the other point, which you guys have stressed before is on the days, it's like your, your a workouts for the week, like it's time to show up and go. Um, and I think most people train too easy on their, on their hard days and they train too hard on their easy days. Um, and that has been the difference for me is, those two those really those two days per week is i'm gonna like demolish myself and then the other days are like enjoyable nice easy um workouts maybe a little bit of strength here some crossfit type stuff but uh, when it's time to like work um like you gotta you gotta go for it if, if you're really trying to trying to make big jumps we had a question come in on friday and you're a good guy to ask about this um they say that morning workouts they can't perform and according to your Strava, Mark, you work out very early in the mornings yeah. and you do hard workouts. Yeah. Seeing those times leads me to believe you're almost rolling out of bed into your running shoes and sometimes getting quality workouts in, right? How do you prepare yourself with that morning window? I think some people are curious. Yeah. So, I mean, it's going to take some mental fortitude, but I get, I roll out of bed. I get in my, you know, I lay out my gear the, the night before I, I get into it. I get downstairs. I We'll sometimes slam a, you know, a half cup of coffee just to get the, uh, the brain going. And then I will, you know, I tell myself, you just got to get into this. So I give myself usually a two mile warm up where it's like, you know, get the head, head straight. And it's, you know, you're kind of over the coldness of the morning. You know, you got a little bit of a sweat going. 
Um, but I think really getting in a, in a good workout. Um, and then I try to tell myself that like you're building toughness here. Like if you can, if you can go hard here in the dark with no one, no one around when you're freezing, um, like this is going to pay off. And I try to think about like, what, what am I doing this for? Um, is it Jacksonville? And that's why I always try to have something on the calendar. Like I just, I just need something like, mm-hmm. is it Jacksonville? Is this, you know, am I looking further down the road at, um, like the national series, like writ large? Um, and I try to remind myself of that. And then I just have, uh, w- some things I like to do is I program my watch through, through like the Garmin app where it like appears in my watch face and small things like that will keep me honest. Cause the night before, you know, I'm wide awake as I'm plugging it into my, whatever I have on my, um, on my workout calendar, you know, I'm plugging into my phone and like, to me, it sounds great at, you know, eight o'clock at night as I'm putting it into the, uh, the Garmin app saying like, okay, on this interval, you're going to run at five twenty-five pace for three minutes. And like, I put it in there. It sounds awesome when I'm sitting in my, on my couch. And then the next morning, my watch is like, dee, dee, like beeping and telling me like, you're dogging it. You're running five forty-five, And I just use like small things like that to keep me honest. I love that. I love it. And you you nailed it right there. That's the difference. You don't we don't roll out of bed and like you don't wake up from sleeping and work out. The the sleep is really just like you lay down to take a few deep breaths before your workout starts. Your workout started that night before. Absolutely. At 8 p.m. your workout started. It's like you got all ready, you laid your clothes out, and then you just said, All right. I'm going to lay down for a few seconds, focus in, take a few deep breaths, and then I'm getting up and going. That's that's what the sleep is the night before a race, before a workout. You can't look at it as, all right, I'm going to bed now because it might be crappy sleep or it disrupts you. You you started it the night before, and that's the key. And do you guys feel like you're – for me, I know if I have it in my brain, what I know I'm getting in myself into the next morning, like it's easier to to get to that. Uh, workout than if I just like show up the next morning, like, all right, Hey, what am I doing today? All right. It's going to be a, a five mile. If I know, oh man, tomorrow morning is going to be rough. Um, I always rise to the occasion the next morning. Um, but if I don't have anything planned and I just show up, it's probably going to be half-assed. That's, that's kind of how I, I feel. I love that there's this whole contingent of people across the country, adults with normal responsibilities, all laying out their clothes the night before. <laughs> so cute. Yeah. I, I think that you could correlate my workout success rate to where I put my clothes the night before. If they're in the dresser, <laughs> I love it's that. a very low correlation. If they're in the hallway, it's probably 50-50. If they're downstairs on the shelf behind our couch, I'm set. Yep. It's, it's just you you start your workout there and your clock starts and then you rest for a little bit and then you wake up and you get you resume the workout. You don't begin it in the morning. You resume it. Yep. I have two more questions um, okay. I'm personally curious about. Um, one is, uh, how'd you get hooked up with Megida? You guys seem to be training confidants as of recently. And yep. are you self-prescribing your own workouts? Or are you under a coach right now? So um so david to answer your first question david and i met at spartan dc um in 2018 uh yeah 2018 so he won it the, i think he won it the year before and uh and then i showed up and beat him in 2018 or was that that might have been 2019 yeah it might have been 2019 um i showed up and i beat him and he just came up to me at the end you know how he is he talks to everybody it's like who are you and uh, he's like, I thought you would just like, you know, you'd burn out. Like I went out and just led from the, from the start. And he's like, I thought you would just, 
um, like burnout and I, I would eventually catch you and you just, uh, continued to pull away. So he invited me to his gym for the Sunday. Uh, it was a Saturday race. I, we didn't want to run it back the next day cause it was the same course again. Um, and I didn't even know there was a Sunday race at that time. That's how new I was to, to Spartan. But, uh, he's like, Hey, do you want to, uh, come to my gym tomorrow? And I, I went out to elevate and we went through a workout with a class, like a full class at the time. And then he's like, he's like, dude, let's start training together. And, uh, really since then, you know, we've been trained together at least once a week and usually twice a week. Um, and, uh, he really prescribes those workouts for the most part. Um, but those other days it's all, it's all on me, uh, for the most part. So really not working on under any coaches, uh, occasionally rich Ryan will, will pop into my, uh, he'll leave me a, a present in, uh, his, he uses the training peaks app and he'll just be like, Hey man, dropped you a couple like ideas in, in training peaks for you for a workout. And, uh, depending on what I'm training up for, uh, to help me get ready. And, uh, we did a training block together to get ready for that, that 10 mile, uh, which was, which is really helpful. And, uh, and yeah, really the, the, I'm sure you guys have heard about torque or the obstacle, uh, racing, uh, collaboration that, uh, that rich got started. So really not, no, no coaching going on at this point, but, uh, we try to meet about once a month and kind of talk, talk training and, and talk, uh, upcoming events and everything. So I'm, I'm really interested to see where that where that goes from here. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, I'm just, uh, you know, just, just a dude writing in a, in a, uh, a notebook, you know, going about two weeks out at a time, uh, for my training, my training log. Bracken, were you a little butthurt that you weren't approached about torque? No, I wanted to be, but they, they claim it's <laughs> new and upcoming people. So yeah, you guys are, you guys are, are so well established. I think at this point that he was kind of looking for like that, that next tier of people who could probably make the next uh, jump. We're just um, giving you a hard time. You guys, you, guys have already, you guys have already made it. I wouldn't say that on my end for sure. I was happy to see you guys put that together. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to ask you, I'm Bracken, I know you probably more, but um, was you mentioned something pretty profound and we didn't even follow up on it. And that was that you have some big, crazy, potentially unachievable goals. But if you miss the mark, at least maybe you'll get pretty close, which would be impressive as well. And so um, I want to know what these big, grandiose goals for this year are. Yeah, so I think the the first one is I want to podium a national series race, um, which, I mean, I was a seventh in Jacksonville last year. But if you if you start like walking that back, you know, if you look at the maybe the seven people behind me, the next seven people behind me, like that's, it's not like I'm going to beat them on every given day as well. Um, with how deep that field is, I think the, the list is growing with who's capable of, of podium and national series race. And you know, everyone shows up for those, those races like rearing to go. Um, but I think this year I have the, I think I've got the fitness um, and I think I'm ready to make that next jump. So I think that's, that's one goal. And I think a top five in the, in the U S national series, if I'm able to, to race, uh, the minimum number of races. So those are, I think those are pretty lofty goals. I think for some people that's, um, those aren't too crazy, but I think for me, that would be a, a considerable jump, uh, from like, from what I've done to this point in my, in my OCR career. And then I think the other one is, is, uh, a, a 24 hour obstacle race. Not sure where that's going to be, but, um, 
you know, I, I look at Ryan Atkins and, and what he can do there. And I think um, with the right preparation, I think I have the ability to, um, to contend at, at a 24 hour race, whether that's world's toughest mutter or the Spartan uh, Spartan ultra world championships. Uh, so I would like to, to stand on a podium in, in one of those two events this year as well. And then I want to win a, a hundred miler. Um, I've actually never run a hundred miler before, um, but I want to win one this year. Um, Appropriately lofty. Yeah. 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 But appropriately. And I, and I won't train for it either. <laughs> <laughs> I, I keep my eye on everyone in the sport for multiple reasons. I'm always watching what people are doing in training because I'm always interested in what else is out there, but I'm always also watching to see how people look into the different facets of their training. And you were one of the first people in this sport, not running, but in OCR to embrace the super shoe. And you wouldn't believe how many questions I personally get. And then the, I'm sure Kirk does. And then the running public's face, uh, Instagram account gets about super shoes ever since they really came to prominence. And since I started talking about testing out the alpha flies. So I'm still testing them. I have pretty conclusive data on them, but I want to, I want to hear your take. You run in the, in the Saucony endorphin pros, if my stocking is correct. 100% correct. Yep. And I want to hear about your experience with them and what your take on the whole super shoe deal is. I mean, I think there's something there. Um, the, the times do not lie. Um, I think personally though, I'm not, I'm not a fan, at least in the endorphin pro of the, of the curved bottom. Have you, have you worn a pair yet? Yes. Okay. There's, they, you feel like you're up on like a, a curve and it kind of propels you forward. I think that's the idea behind it. Um, but I started having some, um, some foot issues leading up to JFK after the, the Richmond marathon, um, in my left foot and then kind of went away from them. I only wear them for racing. And then I brought them back for JFK and it kind of appeared again. I was kind of wondering if there was a connection there. Um, so I went out and bought a pair of the Alpha Flies. Mm. Um, I haven't worn them. Haven't worn them yet. Have you put them on? I put them on, but they feel weird. They feel unlike anything you'll ever put on. Yes. See the the Endorphin Pro. I, I feels more like a normal shoe with just a curved sole. Yes. Um, and it's it's foam is nice. Yes. Yes. And the Alpha Fly feels like like a moon shoe or something. But after watching Rich Ryan just bury me in the final mile of the of the army 10 miler because he had the all flies on and i had the uh endorphins on i just attributed to like that's that extra percent that that he must have had in that shoe that i didn't have yeah um, but i'm definitely i'm definitely a believer what do you think well there i don't even think it's up for debate anymore yeah. if they help or not it's about which one can you safely run in and where is your line? Where, like, I will use this or I won't use this in certain events. But you're right. The the uh, Endorphin Pro, along with several of the other shoes, are shoes. You don't have to relearn to run in them. You just put them on and you're instantly better, mm -hmm. even if they stress you differently because you land differently. But the Alpha Fly, I've had to learn how to run in that shoe. Wow. My, my form's not the same. I was talking to Rich about this, actually, to the point where I don't want to give too much away about our super shoe episode we're going to do, but... I have decided I'm not going to train in these because I'm using such different mechanics that I don't think it will even carry over super well to the, the race course. And the paces I'm running are so different. 
and the effort, even when I increase my effort to try to match a nine out of 10 effort or eight out of 10 effort in another shoe, it's such a different type of effort that it doesn't even feel like I'm working my system in my, like my musculoskeletal system. It's not, I'm not even doing the same type of work in the alpha. Yeah. It's very strange. And the, uh, the vapor fly, have you, have you tried those on? Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause I, they, at least they appear like they look like more of a normal shoe than the, the alpha. Yeah. If, if the endorphin is, I don't know, a, a, a racing shoe, but better, the vapor fly is its big brother. Mm-hmm. It's lighter, it's faster, it feels more aggressive, but it's still, you recognize it as a shoe. Right. It's just making you do things faster. Whereas the alpha fly, you put your feet in it and you're not, you're not like, I've never, I've never felt this before. So yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre to the point where I won't train in it. Kirk, have you, have you worn a pair yet? I just wore my first carbon, you know, plated shoe this this uh, winter, and that's the extent of it. I don't know if I will. I'm afraid if I do. I'm afraid if I do, like, I'm a sucker for temptation, and if that thing helps me run a little faster, I'll be using it when I shouldn't. And I I think I'm going to stay away because I know my own tendencies. There's no no turning back. Um, That's what I'm afraid afraid of. Here's my take on it. If I want to train and get better and match my stride and my cadence to OCR and trail racing and race day, I don't belong in my super shoes on those type of workouts. If I had to put my life on the line for a race, I'd be putting on the Alpha Fly or the Vapor Fly or something like that. 100%. Right. And that's that was kind of my justification for you know dropping the insane amount of money for the Alpha yeah. Fly was after it was really the Army 10 miler um, in 2019 when... As I was coming to the finish, you know, there's like 40,000 runners in that race. Incredible, incredible talent. I was I finished in like the top 40 with a 53 minute. And uh, as we're coming in, I mean, we're packed up probably 10 or 12. And I'm wearing uh, just regular like Saucony Kinvara 10s, I think mm-hmm. at the time. And I look around, every single person who was with me was in a super shoe. Yeah. And I was like, man, I would probably be, you know, I'd probably be a, a couple hundred yards ahead of these guys right now, like closing on that finish instead of sprinting it out. And that was the, the reasoning for me is like, if I'm going to compete, um, I've got to, I got to have a pair now. Yeah. What do you think they do for you? Your endorphin pros, how much faster per mile are you in them? Maybe five, five seconds. Mm. I think is probably reasonable. And the first time I wore them was that, uh, was for that army 10 miler. Cause I, I think I took them out one time and I was like, okay, they feel close enough to a normal shoe that I'll just, I'll just go right into it for the 10 mile. And, uh, but then when I dropped that time, I was like, okay, yeah, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm in better shape, but not in, you know, a minute and 20 seconds better shape than, <laughs> than last year. Five seconds per mile is, uh, is astounding. It doesn't sound like much, but what does that, what does that multiply to over 10 miles? 50 seconds. That's the yeah. difference between 40th and potentially 25th yeah, or 20th exactly. in that race. That's a lot. Finish your thought, Brack, and what were you going to say about the five seconds? Same thing. And that that's that sounds about right. I think the Alpha Flies right now give me 8 to 12 seconds per mile, depending on the pace that I'm, the effort I'm targeting. And that's a lot. To someone who has nothing on the line, it's fun to play around with. To people who just want to hit their PRs, you stay away from the shoe because you can't ever do it again without it. And to people yeah. whose livelihoods on the line, like there's, there's no option. 100%. Yeah. What's $250 yeah. for a pair of shoes. If you win a thousand in the race or <laughs> exactly. 5,000 in the race, you know, do you think a, uh, a super shoe is going to find its way into the trail community? 
Yeah, and they already have. Uh, okay. There is, I'm trying to think here. North Face just dropped one. I forgot what it's called. It starts with a V, Vective or something like that. Um, and they're claiming that they've set several FKTs with it. Um, I believe Hoka's developing one. I know Nike's developed. Nike has one out, but it's massive. I don't even know if it's production yet. It's like a hiker almost. Okay. Um, but yeah, yeah, they are being developed. The tricky part is that as you felt by putting the alpha on, you can really only run in it one way. Your foot hits and it's moving forward on its own. Yep. And that means the more you get away from pavement, the more that becomes sketchy because yep. our foot doesn't hit the same way every time on a trail. And so people have asked, are you going to wear one of the, the plated shoes for stadiums? And my answer is, I actually think I will, but it's going to be the Skechers Hyper Skechers, um, Elite okay. because it's a flatter plate and it doesn't have a huge rock to it. Um, otherwise, I just won't. But can you imagine trying to run downstairs in those or to yeah. plant and turn? It's They're going to have to really figure out what they're doing with it because otherwise you'll be fantastic on gradual downhills and even semi-steep downhills and on the flats. And you're going to be like trying to run a technical trail on pogo sticks. Right. There was a, there was a guy at JFK ahead of me and I passed him on the, on the AT, but he was a professional runner, uh, sponsored by Nike who was uh, in the alpha fly on the Appalachian trail and just, I can't <laughs> just could not move. Like we're on these like crazy switchbacks with, you know, jagged rocks and he was just swearing like as i was as we were going by him and in like an actual trail shoe yeah <laughs> so there's a place for it certainly but it'll be a, it'll become a tool it'll be used for certain type races and it will not be for others and it's going to have a less it'll be more of a rocker than it will be a propulsion right yeah it, it's tricky and and the plate's only as good as the foam it's paired with mm -hmm. and the great yeah. foams are super squishy and you can't get away with that on trail either. So it's it's going to be less cut and dry. We'll see them, but I'm not going to trust the first couple of years of them. Yep, I think so. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, it's going to be some years before they master that one, and we probably start seeing it in OCR, like making a difference. Since we uh, since we have you for just a couple more minutes, since uh, it's top of mind for everybody, let's just talk Jacksonville for like three minutes. Okay. Um, what's your race strategy going in now that you got you know if you're going to make a podium? Uh, flat sea level is a good place to try to make your first one, Mark, if you're going to look at the scope of the season um, for you, knowing your tendencies as a racer. What, it, what are you thinking going into it? If you have to call your shots, make your predictions, what are you doing, man? So I, lo I looked back at last year and I looked at the Strava segments and like kind of where I stood in each one and kind of broke it down and where, you know, where did I lose touch with, with the top guys? Because we were all there coming out of water. Um, we all came into the Z wall generally about the, the same time. And then things kind of really didn't separate in the top group until the sandbag carry. Mm -hmm. And I took that super cautious last year. And I'm generally towards the top in, in uh, sandbag carries. Um, when I can get it across like both shoulders, I'm usually pretty strong in that. Um, and, but that water that was like ankle deep, on my ankles, I was just like really cautious kind of splashing through there. And I looked at the, at the times and I still had, you know, like well above, um, average when you look at the top, you know, the top 15 finishers. And so that was one point where I was like, I think I missed an opportunity right there last year as a sandbag carry. I think, uh, I passed Riker. Like I, I only passed people on the sandbag carry, but, um, 
Uh, but like I looked in, I think Newell like had like an, a crazy sandbag carry and, uh, and Atkins obviously uh, demolished that. Um, but then I was like super cautious all the way through the spear. And then there was that one period where we could open up, you know, I think from the spear to the um, bucket. And that was where I had one of the faster times from like spear to bucket. And then I think I was pretty average from there on out. Uh, so I, I like looked at that and I was like, okay, where did I lose most of the time? And uh, I think it was like, it was early through like some of the obstacles. And then um, like the gap stayed about the same coming out of the bucket carry for me. And so what that just told me is like the obstacle work needs to, to get onto a different level and I need to take advantage of my strengths more. And one is that the sandbag carry, I probably left, you know, 15 or 20 seconds right there on the sandbag carry. And that puts me, you know, probably in the top five, uh, with, with that, the 20 seconds on the sandbag right there. So as far as strategy goes, I think I'm going to probably come out a little bit hotter this year, depending on where that water is. Cause that, I think that negated any mm -hmm. gains that any of us had made at that point, depending on uh, if we go into that water, I'll probably go out a little bit stronger. And then I think when I get to the sandbag, I've just got to go for it. Um, because that's where my strength is. Cause I, I know I'm probably going to lose a second here, a second there on, uh, some of the more, uh, technical type obstacles um because i think some guys just have like ridiculous technique uh so really that's that's all i have for strategy right now um and then i'm just hoping to be in better shape <laughs> than i was last year um what do you think do you have do you have a good strategy that you're gonna you're gonna go with because i know you were kind of disappointed did you just not did you not get out fast enough last year no, I was right with you. I wasn't my, I was struggling with, I had low iron in this whole last spring, which I didn't know and was undiagnosed. I just felt like it was like when you go and you have one of your worst days, yeah. it was one of those. I was, I was work mentally. I was engaged. I was just bleeding time. So that was it. But I think, you know, a smart athlete does exactly what you just said. It's not profound, but what you look at where you could have made up time last year and you work your weaknesses or you, or you make sure to work your strengths. Right. And so like, I don't know what more you could put together in a plan, put yourself in the race don't bitch out on the sandbag carry, right? Embrace it, sink your teeth into it. And then you're in the race and then everything else takes care of itself from there, right? Right. So that's, that's how it works, right, Bragging? Yeah. Yeah, the shorter the race, the more the little things matter. A 10 meter gap might be insurmountable. Yep. And then just, just losing touch, I think, with the, uh, the top group. Like in a sprint, you're just not going to, you're not going to like regain contact once you lose it in a- They're too good. With those guys. No. In the sh in the short races, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The gaps <laughs> yep. only get bigger. Yep. The biggest takeaway, though, if you really look at some of the top top guys, I bet you on obstacles alone, Atkins put thirty seconds on me. Yeah, I bet you. And thirty seconds in a sprint is a long ways. And his his and a few other game is it's on a different level. I think there's a lot of time to be made there. And for a guy like you who clearly can, you know, Atkins can't run fifty two flat for a ten mile. You could put them in all the super shoes in the world and it's not going to run it. Right. I would assume. So, you know, those are the places we got to, got to work. Right. Exactly. Yep. And I, I, I talked a little about this with, uh, with Ryan, uh, with, with Rich Ryan a couple weeks ago is, uh, at the finish line, I was like super disappointed last year. I happy with my, with my finish, but you know, I came across the line and like go whiskey is just, you know, just laid out, um, finishing right ahead of me. And I think, uh, Ryan Kempson is still, you know, still sucking wind, just like he gave it every single thing he had. And like, I crossed the finish line, like I had just run like, a, you know, I just run, you know, 
a, a two mile. Like I just put my hands on my knees and like took a deep breath. And then I was like, good to go. And I was like, man, that's really disappointing that I couldn't sell out. You know what? I want to interrupt you real quick. What do you guys think about that? Like the rolling across the finish line and pretending you're dead. <laughs> I know that those guys don't need to do that. I'm just going to say it. That's not a necessity. That's a choice. Yeah. I, I I've always wondered that. If I don't think it's a, it's the indicator of how much you left on the course because I've been as dead as I've ever been in a couple of races, barely making the finish line. It would be a choice to go to the ground. Would it yeah. not? Can we not say that? What do you think, Bracken? It's a characteristic of certain sports. Triathlon, sure. you collapse at the finish line. Nordic skiing, you collapse at the finish line. But Women, why? Women's cross country, you collapse at the finish line. Like it's just the, it's the characteristic of the sport. Uh, you almost never see track uh, men collapse at the finish line. Is it because the other sports are tougher or just because, you know, like when I'm done, I've earned this rest. I don't know what it is, but I can tell you that the most destroyed I've ever been after races hits me about 30 seconds after I cross the line. <laughs> then you hit the floor. And then I might be out of commission for an hour or two, but no, I've, I don't think I've, and I've, I've blacked out in the finishing shoot before, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I think it's just a, I think it's a learned behavior. I don't think it's negative or positive, but I mean, watch, watch state cross country or national cross country on the women's side. You might have 50% of the women collapse at the finish line. <laughs> but they'll also have baby deer legs in the last 50 meters looking like, is she going to be do. okay? Yeah. yeah. So anyways, it's just a, I think it's a cultural thing. And if you look who does it, you know, Ryan Atkins does it. He's super tough, but he also has a Nordic sports background or like he does a lot of training of that. You know, Lindsay likes to flop down and she, her sister was an Olympic Nordic skier. It's, I think it's just a, it's a learned behavior and you combine it with the people that are super tough. It is tough people that do it. I was just curious. That's a tangent, but it, it, you see it. And I always wonder, am I not doing enough or is, are they doing that by choice? Cause the ground is so appealing in that moment. I don't know. All right. What a note. Anything else, Mark? Anything, uh, anybody supporting you? Are you a sponsored athlete? Are you doing this uh, lone wolf, lone ranger style? So mostly lone wolf, but uh, I've got Hammer Nutrition again this year, um, which is just, you know, like the products I, I use. So um, really happy to be on board with them again. And then I, I use Firefly Recovery, which if you guys haven't tried it, uh, let me know. I'll bring some, I'll bring a couple down there to, to Jacksonville so you guys can, you guys can see them and and test them out but it's just a you know a device you snap, slap on the side of your leg and turn them on and it um hits the uh hits a nerve on the side of your leg and you know you feel a little twitch in your foot and just increases blood flow to the, the lower part of your leg and uh they hit me up after tough mutter or world's toughest mutter in 2018 and uh he's like hey you want to give this a try and i was like yeah i'd love to and so they've really been there for since day one and uh, for me and, um, just a, a super supportive company. And, uh, they're all about ha helping like OCR athletes, you know, recover. And, uh, so yeah, with them and, and that's really about it. Um, and I, I try to do what I can to help, uh, elevate interval fitness, bring in some, you know, clients around the DC area. Cause they, uh, provide me with, with great workouts, um, weekly. And I really appreciate that. But other than that, like I'm not a no shoe contract yet. Uh, nothing, nothing huge going for me. That's going to change soon. I think that if this were a normal year, we could be looking at uh, kind of like a, a woodsy in 2018 kind of year from you. I honestly believe that. I think that your your endurance running's at a point that's, uh, if not head and shoulders, like chin and shoulders above most of the people in the sport. And your speed 
is clearly there. I, I think that this is a this should last year should have been your coming out party. That's what I was hoping for. Yeah, this year should have been as well. We don't know what the season's going to look like, but I don't think you're going to be uh, kind of anonymous for long. Well, I appreciate that, and I I hope not. Yeah, I'm looking to to make a splash this year, and um, and yeah, I think that that incline trainer is really going to help me make the next level with uh, with. I know once we get out of Jacksonville, you know that's that's really going to be the difference. There's some of those races on some some pretty gnarly terrain that I I have not seen Big Bear before, so. Uh, I just watched you guys suffer <laughs> a couple of years ago. So I got to, I got to start getting ready for that. So I know that's where my, my weakness is right now. Which model did you end up going with for the incline trainer? They don't offer the, the 11 anymore, really? which is what I would have gone with. Uh, Cause the 22, the only difference is a little bit bigger motor and a giant ass screen, which I don't really need, but that's the, you know, that's the lowest model of the incline trainer. They, they, uh, offer right now so i went with that and then i i called in and i like milked the guy for the extended warranty and the mat and um like a tried to get a you know i got a pretty small discount on it too but those things are pricey i don't know how much the is the 11 was that still like almost three grand no the 11 was under that i think it started okay. at i think it was on sale down to 2000 and okay. then i got and i got the kirk discount <laughs> all right kirk, kirk are you a nordic track uh I used to have I used to have a little affiliation with them, okay. but that's no longer a thing. <laughs> so nobody can mooch off me. Don't send me any DMs. Yeah, yeah I just actually had to. I added four more years onto my warranty because I don't have my Kirk connection now. I I can't I can't get a discount. So this this baby's just gotta go four more years while I save up for my next one. I'll tell you what. I dropped a seventy five pound bucket on my uh, Nordic Track belt. Slipped out of my hands. One of those sweaty hill sessions before Tahoe cracked the board underneath the belt no questions asked i had a new board at my house being installed for me like two days later wow with the warranty and training was important at that time so they do a good job with their that's their customer service yeah, yeah. that's good to hear yeah i blew up my motor no questions asked mm -hmm. wow. what were you doing on this well, i was doing a double sandbag carry at 40 percent. like oh cool man <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i told him what happened too to mine like i dropped a bucket of rocks on it they're like huh all right, we'll get there in the works for you. Um, all right, we should cut this thing short, but maybe all three of us will be rubbing shoulders and bravado and grunting on each other about four and a half weeks from now. How's that sound? I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. I talked uh, I talked David into racing both days. Really? Oh, yeah. Are you racing both days? So I'm super uh, – oh, this thing's trying to kick me out. That's how you know we're here long. It says, yeah. are you still there? Closing yeah. your window, and, and it gives you a countdown. Yeah. Um, I'm – I don't know. I want to race both days, but if, if I'm looking at the, the bigger picture here, it makes sense just to go on Sunday. The, the one part that really ticks me off and I wish we could do something about it is I don't know why the trail race on Sunday starts at 745. Like if they, if they push that to 10, I would 100% go race the, the trail afterwards and at least get, you know, two races. If I'm going to, cause I'm going to drive down, Dave and I are going to drive down like nine hours. Um, tough to justify a nine hour drive for a 30 minute race yeah, it is and now it's too bad hunter's not going because i'd love to see him and david go down yeah that would be that would be money yeah he served his purpose though he talked me into going there so how's the how's the recovery going it's going really well it's going well good yeah i'm at two or three days of running a week but i can do a lot with that so watch out is that, is that all you're up to now it'll Dang. be two days this week okay. yeah but 
Hey, if you, if you make them count and you get in the skis in between, you'd be surprised. Yeah, even I see you've been putting in the the work on the skis because you're. I didn't know you uh you could hammer that fast in those skis. I didn't either. Yeah, <laughs> learning as I go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm up to two on one off, three on one off. That's my pattern I can maintain now with running. Okay. And do you feel do you feel it like that third day? Yeah, and it's tough right now because it's winter. I, yep. I never realized what achy post-surgery knees felt like, but in this cold, in the summer and fall, I felt like I was really progressing health-wise. And as soon as winter hit, I felt like I took five steps back in terms of the health of my knees. <laughs> I'll tell you what, in ja- Jacksonville in 2018, I was fourth place and I ran three days a week really? to get to fourth place because it was done right and it was done with the right stuff in between. And so... It doesn't take as much as you think. Imagine if you got in your three quality days and then filled the gaps with other types of, you know, similar system-inducing fitness. It can be done. It can be done for anybody. Definitely. So comebacks are irrelevant now, aren't they, Bracken? I I, I decided that this is not a comeback because comebacks don't work late in careers. They almost never happen. This is a return to form. This is nothing else. Comebacks are a fool's errand. This is just return to form. Yeah. Are you going to do the whole... Uh, st- stadium series again is that the focus or are you going to go national series i won't do the national series i don't race i'm not going to race mountains i'm not going to race at al- altitude this year that's uh, to me that's that's going to bang my head against the wall and the wall that wall's not going to move for me uh yeah i'll do whatever short stuff is out there okay um, i'm i'm all in on racing again and training hard but i'm also realistic about the fact that i haven't run over i don't know 25 miles in over a year, <laughs> in, yeah. in a week, and I went seven months off. So no, I'm not. I'm not going to run anything long. Probably the f- only long thing I'll do this year is the West Virginia Beast. Okay, yeah, I love that race. But we've kept you far too long. The Capitals calling. Yeah, I know. Got to <laughs> get back to the Senators. It's been a nice conversation, Mark. Thanks for sharing everything you did. I think uh, people can get to know you a bit. Look forward to following along this season. Yeah, great talking with you guys, and I appreciate you having me on. And I do, I do love listening. Um, and I, a lot of times in those morning runs, I've got you guys um, blaring in the headphones. So um, thanks for the motivation. You are more than welcome. <laughs> see you. All right, guys. I'll see you guys in Florida.